Morning. Hey. Oh, no. I'm going to be wobbly today. That's okay. Today is a day of good news. We've had six weeks in Romans of a lot, a lot of bad news. And today is good news, and the kids are in the service, and I've got my jacket with the big pockets on, and I'm down on the floor. There may or may not be things in my pockets for the kids this morning. Kids, if you don't have your King's Kids bulletins to help you pay attention in the service, feel free to go grab one over there in the basket by the door. Uh, It's a good time to get one because what happens on fifth Sundays when kids are in the service and I'm on the floor and I have pockets? Who who, who said that? (laughs) Oh, didn't make it. Those Twizzlers, it's too light. There we go. Or was it David Jones that said it? All right, just keep passing it all back to David Jones this morning. All right. Uh, today is also Reformation Day, well, or Reformation Sunday, rather. Tomorrow is technically Reformation Day. Why do we, what do we celebrate on Reformation Day? Go ahead. I want candy, but I don't know the answer. You forgot. All right. All right, Abe. <laughs> technically true, but I'm not giving you candy for it. He said his birthday, which is true. He was born on that day. All right. Ozzy, go ahead. <laughs> also technically true, Halloween. All right, what you got? Oh, my man. You get your pick. Here, you pick. Yeah, take that sucker. All right, you hear him? The day Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Why is that important? The world's never been the same since that day. We are here in this church. We have Bibles in our own language. We have the ability to see and articulate the basic teaching of Scripture and the doctrine of salvation because people like Martin Luther fought and suffered for God's truth. And particularly a truth that in God's kindness and God's province, we are here to study today. We just get to it today in Romans. And that's not something that we planned. It's just the way it works. Like, I've just been working through Romans. This is just where we are. The doctrine is... A doctrine called justification by faith alone. Kind of the bedrock of the Christian faith. The bedrock of the Protestant Reformation. It's cool. It's exciting. It's fun. It's where we're at. So for the last six weeks of Romans, two and a half chapters, we have boxed ourselves into the corner of sin. Right? The corner is the, the world's full of evil and sin. And why is it full of sin and evil? Because our hearts are full of sin and evil. That's why. That's why. We're sinful, rebellious people who deserve to face the wrath of God. No exceptions. Not one. Any exceptions in this room, you can raise your hand, and then we will all look at you and say, liar. Which means that you're qualified to be here with the rest of us. Okay? No exceptions, everybody. So the big question is, what's wrong with the world? And the answer is, us. We are. We are what's wrong with the world. And if we're the problem, guess what that means? We are not the solution. We are not the answer. That's right. We're not the answer. So we come to today's passage. We get one of the best and most hopeful words in all of Scripture right away first. And it is the word... All right. It is the word, but I don't know it'll make it that far. Those Twizzlers don't fly. I got too many of them today. It's the word, but... We have been piling it on, sin, on sin, on sin, unrighteousness. You're not righteous. 
okay, but can I at least be righteous compared to other people and stand as judge over them? No, don't be a judgmental jerk. Okay, well, can I manufacture a righteousness of my own, a kind of self-righteousness? No, you can't. You'll just be a hypocrite, right? Nothing. No one is righteous, not even one. We are utterly and totally depraved, and that depravity affects every part of us. Okay, but, but, there's a lot of bad news out there. There's a lot of bad news in here. There's a lot of good news right in here, right? So, ready for the good news? Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to introduce some big theological terms today. I hope, kids, you brought your dictionaries. I hope that you are like spelling bee champs. Big words today. Don't worry. Paul's going to explain them a lot over the next several chapters, but we are introducing them today, okay? The kinds of words that you don't hear often outside of the church. So let's get started. As we do, I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for the men who fought and suffered and died so that we could have it. Make us worthy to follow in their footsteps. Thank you for the clear articulation of the truth of your word by previous generations. Make us faithful to uphold and maintain it and make us faithful to fight where the battle rages among us today. Be near, Father, to the Abrams family as they mourn losses, to the Jones family as they celebrate new life and as they're reminded of the nearness of death. Be with David's father and help them all to trust you with his cancer. Heal and protect him and prolong his days if it's your will. And if it's not, prepare him to meet you and give the family hope and peace. Father, we pray for those among us who are sick and not here this morning that you would heal them and that they would be worshiping you in spirit with us this morning. And we pray for our kids this morning that they, as they grow up being taught your word, would come to love and embrace it with all their hearts. Pray that you would teach them from young ages to see their sin and to hate it and to love their Savior and to run to their Father in heaven who loves them with perfect love. The love that, though we try as their parents, we always fall short of. Overlook our sins as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and draw our kids to you. Help us lead and guide them. Help us love and discipline them. Thank you for their teachers. Thank you that they get to join us in this service today. Help them listen to their parents and to listen carefully to your word and to be respectful to the adults around them as they do. Thank you for the strength and the joy they bring to us as a church family as they sing and as they engage in the sermon. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe. So here's what Paul's saying the whole world has been forced to deal with the problem of sin. We have been forced to deal with the problem of sin. There has been no answer. The whole world has been forced to deal with the problem of righteousness. Namely, we don't have any. We've had no answer. We are unrighteous. We are judgmental. We are self righteous. We are hypocritical, but we are not righteous. And we have no hope of attaining any righteousness of our own that makes us acceptable to God. So God had to do it. There has been no righteousness available to us until now, until Jesus. In Jesus, God has revealed a righteousness that you can receive as a gift instead of a righteousness that you have to work to earn. We all have our list of things that we feel like we can do to earn God's love, all of us. What are they? 
What are some of the things that you think that if I just tick the boxes, if I do these things, I'll be acceptable in God's sight? We all have them. We're all tempted all the time to turn and trust in them. Be baptized, take the Lord's Supper, have a good family, vote a certain way, recycle, get good grades, tithe, back the right causes, have the right bumper stickers, use the right hashtags, demonstrate or signal that we're behaving the right way, believe the right things about the right parts of Scripture. What is it that you hold on to? We'll grab at anything to feel like we've earned God's favor. And we will set ourselves up against each other to do it. We'll try to be righteous by comparison to the people around us. We'll find ways to say, I am better than you. Right? Okay, on the other side of this gym, there's a weight room. And we could all walk over there right now, and Bart Blaylock and I could try to find a place where maybe, possibly, he could lift more than me. We all know how that would work out, right? Kids, who would win in a competition with Bart Blaylock? and me lifting weights over on the other side of the room. Everybody, this is Bart Blaylock. Stand up. Say hi. <laughs> He's a little guy. Obviously, the answer, kids, is wrong, wrong. Wait, what? Who? Nope, that cannot possibly. It's, it's me. That's right. You guys? Duh. Go ahead and have a seat. Obviously, it's me, because I'm a big guy, and he's a little guy. I mean, he's not little compared to the rest of you, but, you know. All right, if we did that, and I showed everybody how much stronger I obviously am than Bart, here's a question. What does that very obvious reality get me in comparison with the God who made the universe? Nothing. Nothing. Next to the God that made the universe, Bart and I are like two ants, and he's like carrying this little tiny crumb, and I've got this big bug on my back that's like five times my size, and we both fit squarely underneath a boot, right? It doesn't actually matter. It's impressive on our scale, but on the scale of God and God's holiness and God's perfection or God's strength... It's meaningless. We're like that. Or we're worse, actually, because we don't have any righteousness of our own to begin with. We only have sin and unrighteousness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said it's much more like uh, worms arguing over who has the bigger pile of fertilizers, I think what he said. On the day of judgment, when we stand before the judge of the earth, And he asks why he should let us into heaven. We can do one of two things. We can point to our own righteousness, our own good works, our stack of accomplishments, our list of things that we have done, or we can point to Jesus and say, I didn't, I've got nothing. I've got nothing but Jesus. He's it. He's my hope. Righteousness is a gift that we must receive by faith. It is for everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, old, young, rich, poor, church, streets, it doesn't matter. God says you cannot do enough to overcome your own sin. You can't do it. Jesus is the one who's perfect, and you can't be perfect. You can only come to God through the one who is perfect. His name is Jesus, and the way you come is not through works that you do. It's by believing in his name, by believing that he's enough for you, not coming with your hands full of your own righteous deeds, but coming with empty hands. Knowing 
you need a righteousness you can never manufacture on your own. All right, everybody with me so far? Sin's a big unsolvable problem. The answer is not that we can achieve it by muscling up. The answer is Jesus. All right, let's keep reading. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. The Apostle Paul can't let it go. Sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody measures up. None of us are righteous. All of us need intervention. All of us need grace. Needing grace qualifies us to to receive grace. That's good news. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here are the three words. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Okay. We have to, if we're going to understand the good news, we have to understand these three words. They all matter. God put them in the Bible for a reason. We can't be too simple that we just pass over these types of things, okay? We have to dig down and understand them. We have to get that work done. Okay, now they are going to be opened up over the next couple of chapters, but we have to introduce them this morning, okay? Three words. They are, again, justified or justification, redemption, and propitiation. Okay, the first is justified. And here's what it means. It means declared or counted righteous. It's a legal word, and the idea or image is like we're standing before a judge. And if we stand before a judge, we hope to hear a declaration that we are not guilty. In our legal system, judges don't declare us righteous or innocent. They declare us Guilty or not guilty, okay? So this is standing before the judge and needing to be, to have a verdict. We come with our arms full of our own righteousness and ask God for a verdict. What's the verdict? Guilty. It's guilty. We don't have it. We can't measure up to his perfections. We don't have enough. We come to God with empty hands. We come to God looking to and claiming Jesus Christ. The verdict is righteous. Not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of what he has done for us. And that's what we're going to continue to explain and open up. It is justification. It is by faith alone. It is being declared or counted righteous before God. And it's something that we receive by faith. So justification, one-time act of God. He declares us righteous. It's all of grace. It's received by faith. How does that all work? Well, it works through the redemption, second word, that is in Christ Jesus. How many of you were here when we studied Ruth? Ruth had, and Naomi had a redeemer, and his name was Boaz. All they had was lost. They needed somebody to step in and save them and redeem them, to pull them out of poverty and death and to protect them. Boaz was a redeemer. Redemption is something that happens when you secure the release of a person through a payment, okay? It's like a slave. You redeem them, you buy them, you purchase them, you pay the price. Jesus purchased us with his own blood and secured our release from slavery to sin. He is our redeemer. 
So our, God's gift of righteousness in declaring us righteous, justifying us, comes to us through the redemption that's in Jesus. How does that work? How does Jesus redeem us? That's the third word. And that word is propitiation. Good job. This candy for you, but I'm not going to throw any more because the Twizzlers just are like flopping all over the place. Propitiation. So here's the thing. God is angry with sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God demands justice. God will pour out his anger and wrath on sin. It must be paid for. What's the payment? Death. Jesus came forward and said, I'll do it. I will pay for it with my own blood. I will sacrifice myself to pay for your sins. I will pay the price of death so that you can be forgiven. You take my righteousness, I take your sin. You take my reward, I take your punishment. You ate from the tree, I'll climb the tree and die on it. You brought the curse of thorns and thistles into this world, put them on my head. I will bear the curse. God owed us nothing but his wrath. God the Father sent his only son to suffer the death that we deserve at the hands of men to save us from our sins. And that's propitiation. That's satisfying the wrath of God. So Jesus came and satisfied the wrath of God, propitiation, through his work on the cross, through his death, through his resurrection. He paid the price for us to be set free, redemption, so that we could be declared righteous in God's sight, justification. That all happened at the cross. So let's stop right there and talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the cross. Because it's easy to be very glib about the cross. We wear crosses around our necks and we hang them up from our rear view mirrors and we have them tattooed on our arms. And there's one sitting outside in the lobby that the YMCA put out there. They're on bumper stickers and jewelry. And some of the jewelry is a status symbol. Let's slow down for a minute. What is the cross? Death. Death. It's death. Any death? Just death? No. Not just death. What are we talking about when we talk about the cross? We're talking about Jesus dying. We're talking about Jesus being executed publicly. Humiliated, tortured, hung. It is the gallows. It's the electric chair. It's the guillotine. It's an instrument of public execution through torture. It's the symbol and icon of our faith. It's right for it to be the symbol and icon of our faith. There's a reason we want to wear it and put it on our churches. The cross is everything. But it's not a good luck charm. It's a reminder of the blood of Jesus being poured out on our behalf. It's a reminder of the suffering and shame that Jesus endured, the suffering and shame that we deserved. It's a reminder of our sin, the sin that required the innocent Son of God to be hung naked from a tree if there was to be any hope for us to be forgiven. The cross was brutal and intense and public. It was designed to discourage criminal behavior. It was effective. The Romans were masters at torture. I mean, they were masters at maximizing pain and suffering. The first thing that happened to Jesus was he got whipped with a cat of 39 tails. So there's this whip 
with bits of bone or shards of pottery and hooks in it. And he got 39 lashes with it. Why 39? Because the Romans had figured out that on average, statistically, 39 times you could survive. 40 times was just a little bit more likely to kill you. And they wanted you to suffer and to survive. So they did the math. And they came out with 39. He was whipped. He carried his cross through the streets publicly. He had nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers in his body. And he was hung publicly naked where everybody could see him, where he could be set up as an example of what not to be. Crucifixions often took as long as a week or more where you suffered the pain of dying multiple times as you drowned in your own fluids and then stood up and gasped for air and prolonged your life just a little bit longer. It was public humiliation. It was physical torture. It was psychological torture. It was brutal. So what's the point? Well, sinner, that's your sin. That's your sin. But it's not just your sin. It's the love of God for you. Some of you live your life thinking that God cannot possibly love you. This is the love of God for you. God the Father sent his son to the cross to save you from your sins. God the Son went willingly to the cross to save you from your sins. When we come to the Lord's table next week, I will remind us again that God's grace and love is more real than the bread we eat and chew and the wine that we drink. How can I say that? The cross, that's why. Because the bread and the wine are pictures of something that is much more real. They're pictures of the reality of the substance, of Jesus' body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. They are the love of God to you. Does that mean that you're so valuable and wonderful and Jesus couldn't live without you so he died to save you? No, it means God's love is that big. It had to be because our sin is that big. So that you unrighteous pagan, you judgmental jerk, you self-righteous hypocrite could stand and be adopted into God's family. We're saved from the wrath of God because God took his own wrath on himself. That's what the cross is an undeserved, out of nowhere, simply because he loves you, act of God to deal with the justice of God. So when we come to Jesus, do we come with empty hands? Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Maybe a better way to put it is we come with our sin. We lay them on the head of Jesus. We look at the cross. We say, I deserve that. I did that. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that gets us out of cheap grace into something more like real grace. But we can't stop there either. We can't stop at my sin. Because that still keeps it about us. And it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his kindness. It's about his love and his mercy and his justice. 
It is about the depth of your sin versus the depth of his love, and his love is bigger. His mercy is more. His grace is greater. You need to receive it. How do you receive it? You believe. You take hold of it by faith. You take hold of him as your Lord. You embrace the fact that he has done it and there is nothing that you can do. You accept and embrace. You receive the gift. That's what Romans says. That's the good news of the Bible and the good news of Romans. It's the good news of Reformation Day. It's the good news period. It is the gospel. It is what frees us to face down our sin. It is what frees us to face down the sin in our own lives, in our past, the sins of our fathers, the sins of our father's fathers, all the way back to Adam. And if you're looking to be transformed by the gospel, by God and by his word, if you're looking for power to change, it starts here by embracing God's love for you in Christ and being adopted into his family and coming to terms with him as your perfect heavenly father. That is when you can begin to deal with your own sin and the sins of your fathers and the sins of your father's fathers. And if you can't do that, it's because you've not embraced him as your father in heaven. And if you can't do that, and if you haven't done that, it's because you've not seen the cross the way you need to see the cross. The cross is God's love for sinners, for the world. We say it, we repeat it, we avoid it because it sounds cheap and it's been cheaply used. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Okay, a couple things to add and to work through as we come to the close of this chapter. A couple of grace notes for us. Number one, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is one of my favorite things that gets thrown in there because here we are, the cross, grace. Paul's like, and that explains why the world did not explode in hellfire the instant that Adam ate from the tree. We're like, what? But that's what he's saying. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his patience, in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Paul sees a problem here that I don't think that we see because we don't see the depth of sin. He's like, there has to be an explanation for why God allowed Adam to take a single breath, why any of us are still here. What's the explanation? The cross. There's a concept in our legal system that's very important. You have the right to a fair and speedy trial. A fair and speedy trial. Because justice delayed is justice denied. And that's true, right? You don't want to get thrown in, you know, accused of a crime and thrown in prison and then go 10 years without a trial to vindicate you, right? And you don't want a murderer to walk the streets because just the wheels of justice are slow. The principle of justice is fair and speedy. God needed a justification that was big enough to delay justice. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. What Paul is saying is that every second the world has turned from the day that Adam sinned until now was purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. We are living in a world that has been bought and paid for by blood. The only thing standing between us between the whole world and God's judgment is the cross of Jesus Christ. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we, he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God in his love made a way to show grace and mercy without compromising his justice so he could be just and the justifier, so he could save at the cross where love and justice kiss. Okay, so here's the application. Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of, Gentile, of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, let me make this really, really simple. No one has any ground to stand on above anybody else. Even Big Bart is small beneath the cross. There's no good person. There is no good people versus bad people. There is no other. There is no Jew or Gentile, black, white, or Asian, not rich, not poor, not young, nor old, not church, not street. There's one God. He's the God of us all. We're all equal beneath the cross of Jesus. And by faith, we are all one in Jesus. So no one has anything to boast about. Nothing to be proud of in themselves. Nothing to hold over anybody else. All we have is Jesus. In another place, Paul says, if I'm going to boast, it's going to be in Jesus or in the cross. Cross. That's it. That's all I got, the cross. There is no more boasting. There is no pride. There is no ego. There is no room for it at the foot of the cross. Now, Paul imagines right here is a place where we're just going to be idiots and say, well, so do we get to throw out the Old Testament then and the rest of the Bible? And he says, no, don't be stupid. Okay, don't be stupid. And he's going to come back to that argument later and say, listen, what it actually means is we understand God's word better. We understand the law better. It's a tool. It's not a tool for earning God's favor by our works. It's a guide for how he wants us to live. It still matters. It's a guide to show us our sin and our need of Jesus. That still matters. It's a testimony to his character. That still matters. But it's just not some kind of way to leverage God's love. God's love can't be bought by our good deeds. It's just the cross. So here's the application. It's very simple. Humble yourself before God and come. The gospel is the power of God to deal with sin and to deal with it at its root. It begins by removing the condemnation and guilt of sin and declaring us righteous by faith. And once we embrace that and understand that, then it works to transform our lives and make us righteous. It's called sanctification. We'll get to that later in the book of Romans. But it starts by restoring us to a right relationship with our Father in heaven. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. You look at the lack of God's power in your life. You wonder what's wrong. And you've never actually started at step one. You're trying to skip to step two and get things right. But you've never actually embraced the love that God has for you in Christ. You've never actually had it work its way through you. You've never evaluated your life in relationship to God the Father. So... 
The gospel removes the condemnation and guilt of sin. It sets us free. It restores us to God. And what I want for everyone this morning is for us to all embrace God as our heavenly Father. Father who's perfect, who loves us perfectly, who accepts us freely in Christ. And like I said before, some of you can't believe that you could be loved, so you've made God as small as you are, or as small as the people who hurt you when you were a child. The call this morning is just to look at the cross and come to the cross and drop your defenses and quit playing games and stop propping up your ego and come to the cross where God's love is on display perfectly. Where there's power to deal with your sin, where there's power to deal with the sins committed against you all the way back to our first father, Adam, but it starts with coming to God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So come to God. Come to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and care for us this morning. We thank you for sending your son, for loving us, for loving the world. Give us faith to come to Jesus. Give us faith to come to you through him. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.